0: Do we have any Divorce Court fans in the room? Anyone anyone watch Divorce Court? Jerry Springer? I mean, it's kind of old school. Jerry, Jerry Springer, all right. All right, we got a few Jerry Springer class. Well, in today's text, in a sense, we're going to be watching an episode of Divorce Court. Only we won't have two parties, you know, bickering and fighting about ridiculous things. But we will see a most holy God bringing his case against his unfaithful wife. He's going to lay out all his grievances that he has with his wife, as well as some of the consequences uh, for all the indecent acts that she has done. Brandon introduced the book of Hosea last week, and he spoke on the first three chapters where we saw the personal story of the prophet Hosea. And we saw the mess of a relationship that he was in, that God called him to be a part of. And this relationship was supposed to serve as essentially a sermon illustration for the rest of the book of Hosea. But it also kind of forms the the structure or the outline for the rest of the book. And so today we're going to look at the unfaithfulness of Israel. We're going to see the covenant relationship being destroyed just as Hosea's covenant relationship was destroyed by Gomer's sin. So, for the sake of time, we're just going to read Hosea 4, but we'll be dealing with Hosea 4 and 5. Please stand in reading the word of God with me. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priests. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being my priests, and since you have forgotten the laws of God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sins of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish. Or they've forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which takes away understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff give them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on top of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, or your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes, and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, And swear not, as the Lord lives, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Without the knowledge of God, we will become unfaithful and destined for destruction. These two chapters of Hosea are written in poetry. And so there's a ton of beautiful imagery in here that's kind of hard to to understand. And unfortunately, I don't have time to go through and explain all the imagery in this passage because then this would not be really a sermon but just a commentary. And so I really encourage you guys to to take some time to study these two chapters and to to see the snarkiness but also the pointedness of God in his message to Israel. But they they really help to... um, just put the exclamation point on the message that we're going to talk about today. And that message is simple. We see that God's calling Israel unfaithful to the covenant relationship that they had joined into with God. Why? Well, verse 1 spells it out plainly there. There's no faithfulness, no steadfast love. And as we walk through the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's just this whole idea of whoring, or the spirit of whoredom being among the people, that just helped to explain that what's going on is they're unfaithful. If you look at Hosea uh, chapter 4, verse 12, the second part there, you see, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. And and throughout this these two chapters, we see God explaining the reason for their unfaithfulness as well as how it's manifested itself, the specific ways in which they have been unfaithful to their God. So we're going to look first at the reason um, for their unfaithfulness, and then we're going to look a little bit more into how it manifests itself, and we will end with looking at the solution to this problem. The reason for this unfaithfulness is that the nation as a whole lacks the knowledge of God. The lack of knowledge of God and and unfaithfulness, they just go hand in hand. If we don't have faithfulness, we don't know God. And if we don't know God, then we can't be faithful to him. And conversely, the other is true. If we know God, then we will be faithful to God. And if we are faithful to God, then we will grow in our knowledge and understanding of who he is. The knowledge that's being spoken of here is not just an intellectual knowledge. It is not facts. But it's rather an intimate, personal knowledge that's found only in a deep relationship. This knowledge includes facts about the person, but it also includes all the nuances, the personality quirks, the character traits, that make up that person. It's the deep knowledge that we often call intimacy in a marriage. And in fact, the Hebrew word for yada has this deep, intimate, personal connection. And in fact, it's t- translated um, for sexual relations throughout the Bible. And so if you look at Genesis 4, chapter one, you see Adam knew Eve And she can see. And so yada is this deep, deep personal knowledge. If you're married, or perhaps in a serious relationship, or perhaps just saw your parents, if they had a good marriage, you've seen this knowledge on display. The ability to just kind of read one another's minds. To finish their sentences. Right? Another great example of this is Perhaps your dad said, I'm not going to do that because your mom is going to kill me if I do it, right? This is that deep knowledge that comes through relationship. Now, this relationship and this knowledge, it does start with facts. But then it grows and grows and grows. If we look at a dating relationship as an example, right? Two people start to to learn some basic facts about each other. Perhaps they read them on a profile online, or perhaps their friend is playing matchmaker and tells them a few things, right? Older Christians, they're they're the worst at this, right? All the single people you know, right? The old old saint of the, the church just comes up, you have to meet my granddaughter, she's just so sweet. Right? All right, I'm not the only one that had that, all right. But see, when the two people actually meet, then they start to move past just these facts that they learned about each other. They start to interact, and the facts take on a deeper meaning. This knowledge goes from just knowing that, you know, they have siblings to knowing, oh, they have like 10 brothers and sisters, and they want 20 kids of their own. Right? Or you start to realize that they're not just like a pet lover, like they are all in. Like they have twenty cats, and like you better not like hush. The, like you don't ask to take that cat seat, right? Right. And so it's not just a fact. You, you you get some personality to it, and this is the knowledge that God is expecting His covenant people to have. But sadly, this is the knowledge that is lacking in Israel. See, Israel started out learning these facts and growing in intimacy with God as he called them out of Egypt to be his people. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them the story of creation to tell them some facts of how he is the supreme creator of the whole universe and that there is no other gods like him. And they started to see his character as they saw God get angry when they broke the Ten Commandments. They saw God's power on display even as he was bringing them up out of Egypt through the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and as they took the promised land. They saw God's love. They saw God's provision as they wandered in the desert. They saw all of this. And it almost culminated in King David where where. They were just so unified with God. They were doing worship properly. They were seeking after God because the king had a heart like God. But unfortunately, we're past the glory days. We're now to the point where Israel has forgotten Yahweh. Now, they had not just forgotten Yahweh in name because they still worshipped him. They still would say, oh, yeah, yeah, Yahweh, yeah, he's a good guy. He did some cool stuff for us. But they had forgotten his character. They had forgotten who he was and what he required of them. And instead of seeing him as the supreme God, he was just another one of their deities to worship. So that is the reason behind the spiritual adultery. They would forgotten their God. And sadly, if we don't stay connected in that relationship with God, we'll end up in the same place that they are. It's very easy for us to go a few days and not be in the Word, to not pray. Or or, or life just happens and we miss church, and so we miss hearing from God, and we miss being connected, and we miss being in relationship with God. And if we don't remedy that, And we'll just continue to get farther and farther away from God. So in our scripture, we see two major ways that this forgetting of God kind of manifested itself in the nation of Israel. And they're good things for us to check in ourselves to make sure that we are not falling and slipping away from God. The first is improper worship. And the second is breaking God's commands. If we look in uh, verses 12 to 17 of chapter 4, we see their improper worship. They have turned to common things like wood and walking sticks to hear from the Lord. Animal sacrifice is taking place everywhere instead of just in the temple. In verse 15, God tells Judah to not go to Gilgal or Beth-Avon to worship because these places are corrupt. Now, Beth-Avon is kind of a sarcastic nickname God has given to Bethel. It's meant as a wordplay, just as some people call Missouri, misery. See, Bethel means house of God, while Beth-Avon means house of idolatry. Now, both of these sites started out as holy places, significant events took place throughout Israel's history at these places. And so people went to them to remember God, to remember what God had done, whether God had provided victory for them, God had provided water, God had separated a body of water so that they could get through. These places were no longer holy. These places no longer pointed people to the true God. They were polluted with idol worship. Pagan gods were worshipped there, right alongside Yahweh. And the practices for worshipping these pagan gods were now used to worship God, including prostitution and child sacrifice. Not only do they have improper worship in practice, but their object of worship has changed as well. If you go down to the end of chapter 5 and verse 13, you see that they are no longer putting their trust in God, but yet they have reached out to the Assyrian nation for their protection. So they no longer worship God as their protector, but they're saying, Assyria, come save us. Assyria, come protect us. And so they had given, they'd paid tribute to the king. But in God's divine judgment, that's going to come back to backfire on them as Assyria will come and be God's method of punishment on them. Sadly, today we have the same thing happening. Churches that once preached the gospel now preach a message of universalism. Worship songs are no longer focused on God but on humans. Or on the 4th of July, to a nation. People no longer go to worship God at church. They no longer go to hear from Him, and to experience this relationship. They go for their own glory. They go so that people think well of them because they went to church. Or they're going to just hear some happy news and to get their fix of happiness so that life can be peachy keen for the next week. And they're not going for what worship is about, which is the glory of God. And some people, sadly, they just go to check off a box, to say that they've done what they should do, instead of going to meet with their creator, their sustainer, their savior. And so when we gather here, we intentionally focus in on worship, worship through song, worship through giving, worship through community, worship through preaching the Word of God. And hopefully you get to feel that we're all about God and God's glory and knowing God and serving Him. But if you see us slipping in that, let us know. Let the elders of this church know. Now, the second way that this sin of forgetting God manifests itself is in lawlessness. If we go back up to uh, verse 2 in chapter 4, we see a list of sins that really goes along with the Ten Commandments. Swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. Now, side note, swearing here is not referring to cussing, but to making promises or oaths to God and then breaking them. Now, oftentimes when we see this list found in Scripture, these lists of sin, they're not meant to be exhaustive. They're not meant to cover every sin that is present because, in fact, every sin and every form of that sin is present. But this serves to show total depravity, to show that the people are just doing whatever they see is right in their own eyes, that they are guilty of breaking all of God's commandments. And in fact, if you take the first indictment in chapter 1 and this list in chapter 2, it really spells out the greatest two commandments. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And God is charging Israel of being guilty of both. And you might be asking yourself, How did this get so bad? Like, how did Israel go from being God's chosen people, seeing the fire on the mountain when Moses got the Ten Commandments? They saw the sea part twice. They saw God fighting for them as they went into this promised land where there were giants, and it was really scary. How could they get so evil? Simple. They lacked the knowledge of God. And their sinful nature took over. And more specifically, if we look at verses 4 through 10 of chapter 4, we see that it's the the priest's fault. Because they were not doing their job. They allowed the people to forget their God. This accusation is made most prominent in verse 6. They rejected knowing God and forgotten his law. So ironically, because of this, God is rejecting them and forgetting their children. Meaning that he's not going to be with their descendants. He's not going to put his um, blessings upon them. And he's not going to have his protection on their descendants. It's is a horrible place to be. And these are serious consequences which show us just how serious this sin is. So the priest's job mostly was to conduct worship, to keep that pure, to keep that holy, to tell people, no, we don't worship God like that because he is a holy God, because he is the supreme and one God. Not, yeah, well, that's all right. You can, uh, yeah, 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 baal Yeah, he's good. You can, you can worship him over here and uh, Yahweh over there they'd also failed to read the written word to God, to help the people know what God required of them, to let them know the terms of this covenant agreement. The nation of Israel wasn't as lucky as we are today. They didn't have Bibles in their homes. And so they relied on the priests to tell them God's word. And they had a whole system of festivals and and Special events that they did throughout the year that were to remind them of who God was. And so the priests would read the sacred text at that time, reminding them of what God did. When they go out and sleep in the tents, so it reminded them of wandering in the wilderness and God providing everything that they needed. This is similar today to Easter and Christmas, where we remember the birth of our God, when we remember his death, and we look back on those moments fondly. But in addition to interpreting and applying the word, priests were also charged of the sacrifices. The sacrifices were made to pay for the people's sins. However, the priests were allowed to take a small portion of the sacrifice for themselves. Kind of like their payment, you could say. They were allowed to do this because they were so busy doing the work of the Lord that they didn't have time to grow their own crops. They didn't have time to raise their animals, nor did they have the land to do it. When God was distributing all the land, he gave it to all the nations, but he didn't give some to the nation that served as the priests. And so they relied on everybody else's offerings to live on. And so if you look at uh, verses 8 and 10 through chapter 4, it seems to imply that the the priests failed to correct the Israelites because they were benefiting from their sins. The more the people sinned, the more food they got. And so they were getting fat off the iniquities of the people. And lastly, the priests allowed and condoned pagan worship in God's holy places and in on nasty ways. Now before you think, I'm safe. This is only applying to the elders of the church. Let me remind you, fathers, you are the spiritual leaders of your household. You are charged with making sure the entire family knows God. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Fathers, we have this responsibility. This responsibility to know God and know his word. And we should know God on such a personal level that we're able to model that, to lead and guide our family, to see into our family's needs as the Holy Spirit leads us. So fathers, how are we doing at this? Are we regularly studying God's Word and teaching what we're studying to our kids? Are we regularly spending time in relationship with God Almighty and we are allowing our kids to see that? Are we teaching and instructing our kids how to read their Bible? how to lock themselves in the closet for some time and and just pray and be in the presence of God. If you're struggling with this, don't struggle alone. This is tough. There's so many needs and responsibilities, so many other things calling our attention to be good fathers. But this is the utmost importance. If you're struggling, find some of the older gentlemen in this church who have raised their family. Find out what keys to success. Find out what practices they, they use. If you just need resources, I have plenty of books on the topics of reading your Bible with kids, and half of them I haven't even gotten to read yet, so feel free to come read them and instruct me on how to raise my children well. It's a great thing to talk about in bridge groups. Great thing to to partner up maybe with a dad in your bridge group and hold each other accountable to this mighty task of spiritually leading our families. Now ladies, you're not getting off the hook either. See, we, we have some certain advantages here. Every one of us has probably multiple copies of the scripture. The Israelites didn't have this. So ladies and everybody, we are personally responsible for being in God's word, for, for fostering this relationship with God. When we stand before the Almighty, he's not going to go, oh, well, you know, your pastor didn't preach a good sermon that week, so it's cool that you're disobedient. No, God holds us, each and every one of us, responsible for being in the word, having our time in prayer. I hope you see this as a blessing as much as a challenge. Because it is truly just wonderful to spend time with our Father in Heaven. To have Him remove all the lies that are going on in your head, all the doubts, all the fears that you have. When you don't feel you're worth anything, God comes in and He says, I love you. I love you. So church, how are we doing in our relationship with God? This is one of my favorite questions to ask people that I'm meeting in discipleship with. What's God doing in your life? You can gauge so much about people's spiritual climate just by that simple question. So if you don't know what God's doing in your life, Or you feel like God's far off. It's time to return to him. It's time to invest in that relationship. It's time to have some relationship goals, to use the vernacular of the youngins. Just spend sweet time. House cleaning, it can wait. Mowing your yard, it can wait. Spending time with God in deep relationship so that you can have yada with God. It's the most important thing. Because if we don't, if we don't, sin is able to come in and get its latches into us and pull us away. D. L. Moody, great, great preacher, the turn of the century, said, Your Bible will either keep you from sin or your sin will keep you from your Bible. How true that is. How true that is. So now we're going to start turning and looking at the solution to this. The solution of knowing God. And unfortunately, it's not really a pleasant one because they are so wrapped up, they are so entangled in their sins that the only thing God can do is bring punishment upon them. We see God's grace in 4.3 where we see that God had been giving them warning signs. It says, Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish, And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and even the fish of the sea are taken away. It seems that this is alluding to a drought. And if the fish are feeling this drought, this is a very severe drought. And so in God's grace, he was sending this warning sign saying, Come back to me, Israel. Come back. Have you forgotten about me? Come back to me. I love you. But unfortunately, they were so entangled in their sins they could not turn back to God. So God gets more severe as the passage goes on. We see him in verses 5:14, "For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Israel, I, even I." will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall shall rescue them. God, all through this, is taking credit for this punishment. But we shouldn't see this punishment as vengeance from God. We should see this punishment as love. See, God loves us so much that he will not let us remain in our sins. But unfortunately, because we are so stubborn, because we are, our mind is so darkened by sin, that God often has no chance but to bring this kind of destruction upon people to help them realize just how far they've gotten. See, it's the slippery slope, right? We, we, we start with just a little bit of compromise, and it's not that bad, and we still feel God, but then it gets easier the next time, and the next time, and the next time. And, and once we've opened the door to one sin, it seems like all the other sins just come in and we just find ourselves getting farther and farther away from God. So God must come. See, some people think that just the natural consequences of our sin is what we, get, we deserve, right? It's kind of like that karma that's really popular right now. But see, that's a lie. We can't hold to that as Christians. Christians. God's taking credit for this. God loves us so much that he is intimately weaving this wonderful punishment specifically for us to get our attention, to pull us back into relationship with him. And so the old adage proves true, that people will not change as long as the cost of remaining the same I'm going to butcher this, is not, is not greater than the cost. So in order for us to change, the cost of change must be less than the cost of remaining the same. If, unless God brings this punishment upon us, we will be content to sit in our sin. We'll be content to not know God. And so God brings these hardships to Israel and into our lives to help us see that we have wandered so far away. In this passage, we see God, and he's talking in the last verse of uh, chapter 5. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and their dis- in their distress earnestly seek me. See, it seems that like God is removing himself. He's removing his blessing. He's removing his presence He's removing his protection from the people. Which I think is the worst punishment of all. It's to not be able to hear God, not be able to see God, not to be able to speak with God. So therefore we're handed completely over to the full weight of our sins, which we deserve. And it's meant to return us because we just see how bad it is, how disgusting it is. We go, God, I don't want this anymore. God, help me. God, reveal the sins in my life. And then God, in his grace and in his mercy, he does just that. He shows us the sin. And as we start confessing that sin, as we start repenting and running away from that sin, God comes and he restores us mightily. I have no doubt that there's people in this room right now who are probably looking at their lives and going, gosh, my life sucks right now. Yes, this is bad. Like, why, why, why? Well, sometimes it's the result of other people's sin. But sometimes it's God in his love pulling you closer to himself. He's showing you the life of sin that you thought you wanted to live. You get to see how bad it is. So things are going wrong in your life, how's your relationship with God going? Are you spending time with God? Are you acknowledging who God is in your life? Or are you just, God, uh, help me for this, this sucks, please change my circumstances, alright, peace. Right? Because that's, that's our tendency, that's what our sinful nature wants to do. But when we actually spend time, when we actually grow in the intimacy, we can hear God whisper, "Hey, you bonehead, you're being really selfish right here. Hey, stupid, what being so prideful? Hey, man, you got some anger in your life. We gotta check that anger. I know you got some pain. Give that to me. I'll take it." Some of us need to do this for the first time. Some of us need to actually, for the first time, accept the gospel in our lives. To pile our need to the one and true God and to start that relationship with God. To grow, to taste and see just how good God is. For other of us, we just need to return to God. We need to do, put in the hard work of making that relationship with God our utmost responsibility. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can look back and see that we are not alone in our wandering from you. Father, that this problem has been going on for a long, long time. But Father, we thank you that you see all, that you know all in our lives. Mostly that you love us too much to let us remain in this sin. And though it's hard, Lord, we do ask that you would reveal sin in our lives. You would help us to see, Lord, where we have forgotten you where we've wandered away, where we've gone chasing after other gods, where we've failed to worship you properly, Lord. Father, we pray that we would see the warning signs and that we'd turn back to you before it's too late. Father, we just ask for you to meet with us. Meet with us on Sundays. Meet with us at bridge groups. Meet with us when we are in prayer. Meet with us when we're in your word. Father, we are hungry to have a Yada type of relationship with you. So Father, come. Come meet with us. Come restore our broken relationship with you, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. In your wonderful and glorious name. Amen.